0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage click on How You Can Help. Thanks.
1: We believe that to build this nation, you have to have reconciliation. Forgiveness goes together with reconciliation. The one cannot be done without the other.
0: After long suffering, a gentle jailmate of Nelson Mandela reflects on ways to heal South Africa's racial wounds. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Risen to Parliament, the life journey of Ahmed Kathrada embodies the remarkable transformation still being absorbed by the people of South Africa. Born there as a member of the Indian minority, he was raised by a deeply religious father who taught principles of equality and justice. As a teenager, Kathrada had joined the movement to resist South Africa's conditions of racial separation. Under the apartheid policy, racial minorities were banned from many occupations, were paid far lower wages than whites, and were denied the right to vote. Nonviolent efforts to defy this system resulted in police crackdowns, in which thousands were imprisoned. Later, according to Cathrada, about 100 anti-apartheid activists were tortured to death by police. The resistance movement eventually undertook a series of bombings, which led to the famous Rivonia trial. In 1964, Kathrada was found guilty, along with Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Govan Mbeki and others, of committing sabotage against the apartheid government. They were sentenced to life imprisonment
1: and served their time mostly on Robben Island. We knew we were going to win. What we didn't know and what never ever crossed our minds is that we would be sitting in parliament, that Mandela would be president never crossed our minds, but we knew the organization, the struggle we represented was going to succeed sooner or later. In
0: 1989, shortly before the release of Nelson Mandela, Kathrata was freed after 26 years behind bars. Kathy, as everyone calls him, was then elected to parliament and now in his 70s serves as head of the Robben Island Museum Council. As witness to an agonizing chapter of history, Kathy remains highly emotional And in the telling, his voice sometimes trembles. And yet also audible in his voice is an astonishing absence of bitterness an understanding that vengeance is counterproductive during the birth of a more enlightened society. A soft-spoken man, Ahmed Kathrada, walks the fine line of forgiving sins from the past without forgetting
1: the pain they inflicted. A young person whom I regarded as my young brother, he lived with me for years, he was thrown off a building six floors and killed. Others were tortured to death by electric shocks. One was tortured to death, and the inquest court found that he slipped on a piece of soap. Uh, in fact, that court, the courts were so prejudiced that uh, they did not explain the 30 odd wounds he had, which could never be inflicted by, by slipping. But uh, as I say, about a hundred of our people died, and many others survived. Some were brain damaged, some are still suffering from epileptic fits as a result of that. So that is torture under police. I mean, the Truth Commission, for instance, uh, people have appeared before it, where a victim identified an arm, just an arm, and identified that arm through a ring as the arm belonging, to a son. Then there was uh, cases where the police killed brutally, uh, execution style. And not only were they satisfied with killing them, they then tied dynamite around them and blew them up.
0: What for you were the worst deprivations
1: of spending 26 years in prison? Well, there were many deprivations. First of all, of course, it's the deprivation of freedom, of the freedom. But then different people felt different deprivations. Uh, some may talk about food, some may talk about sports, some may talk about families. But every prisoner would say that the worst deprivation we experienced was the absence of children. Children were never allowed to visit us until they turned 16 or 18, I'm not too sure. Uh, Did you have a family? No. Uh, But the first time I held a child in my arms, and that was quite by accident, was after 20 years. Uh, So it's an unreal world. You have the uniformed warders and uniformed male uh, prisoners and no children. And they did everything possible to see that we got nowhere near children. So, that I, I'd say was the, the very worst deprivation. Uh, Just being cut off
0: from the cycle of life that, that children represent.
1: That's right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an unreal society without children.
0: How did you maintain your spirit under such adversity?
1: Well, you know, first of all, we were engaged in illegal activity. And when you are engaged in such activity, you know from the beginning that you cannot last forever. You are going to be arrested sooner or later. Although You you were pretty realistic about it. Oh, yes. And when the arrests come, although it comes as a shock, because you never expect to get arrested uh, when you're going to get. But you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that you are going to be arrested. So we were psychologically prepared. Then there were other very important factors. For instance, uh, and I think this was summed up beautifully by an Anglican priest, Father Hughes, who used to visit uh, us on Roman Island regularly, very, very wonderful human being, and he quoted to us a saying which summed up our position. It was apparently a Chinese saying. said, I grumbled and groused because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. So there was always the, the knowledge, that while we were in prison having it hard, our colleagues in the same struggle were having it worse. Many were tortured to death, others were just tortured and brain damaged, others died as a result of letter bombs and parcel bombs, others died uh, in skirmishes with the other side, others were banned, banished, harassed we were better off. So there was that knowledge that always there were people in our same struggle who were worse off. Then as important was the knowledge that they had failed to crush the movement, that the international solidarity was growing, but the constant knowledge, and we were not allowed news by the way, Uh, newspapers were banned, we had to smuggle, Successfully, of course, but for 16 years, we were not allowed news officially. But we managed to get in news, and the constant trickling in of news about solidarity, about the struggle itself, about the international support, helped to keep up our morale. During his
0: 26 years of incarceration as a political prisoner in South Africa, Ahmed Kathrata faced the desolation of life behind bars. In his memoir, Letters from Robin Island, published in 1999, Kathi recounts how jail officials imposed racial discrimination. Black inmates were denied even socks during cold weather, while those of Indian background like him, although seen as inferior to whites, were permitted socks. But his comforts were few, and the austere jail atmosphere could be very
1: tense. At first, it was uh, antagonistic because the guards themselves had been recruited to brutalize, to, 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 to call us into submission. We, of course, didn't have to take a, a decision because it came to us naturally that we are not going to submit to anything that infringes on our dignity as human beings we will not be driven to do more work than necessary than than we could do as human beings so we had to retain, maintain our humanity our human dignity but they then began to realize that they were not dealing with criminals as they've been used to all their lives beat them into submission they were not going to succeed with us So that also changed them. Uh, We never succeeded in politicizing them, but we can claim that we humanized uh, most of those who worked with us. Their attitudes changed towards us. And now, if you go to Robben Island, uh, you'll notice right from the harbor in Cape Town and on Robben Island itself, though not as many as we would like, there are former warders who are working with us, with former prisoners, on a full-time staff of Roman Island, and they're working as a team.
0: It's ironic because, of course, they saw their job as to incarcerate and perhaps rehabilitate you, but in fact, you viewed the task as trying to humanize and rehabilitate them. And I think we
1: succeeded in, in humanizing the vast majority of those who with whom we come into contact, and we still maintain contact with some of them. It's a process during which, uh, by example, By talking to them, they begin to learn that these are not people with horns, these are just human beings like them with basic human needs. They come to learn from us. They listen into our discussions uh, at work. While we were working, we were allowed to talk. They came, stood near us, listened to us.
0: Did you consciously work to befriend and relate to your guards?
1: We had to consciously do that because we had to also have relaxation. We could not live for long years with tension. It was in our interest to have relaxed a relaxed atmosphere. So we also consciously went out of our way to establish this relaxed atmosphere. So were you able to see them as fallible human beings and lo- oh, yeah. love them and have compassion for them and understand their problems? Naturally we did uh, I think I'm saying so in one of my letters that we have compassion for them they they were indoctrinated. Especially the younger ones that were recruited, they had been indoctrinated to believe that these are subhumans uh, who jump at any opportunity to physically harm them and so forth. That's what they believed, and they began to realize that that was not so. So, no, that uh, it was a conscious effort on our part, but also it came naturally that we just had to humanize these people, and we have said in in the letters that we just wish that the rest of white South Africa would learn that by keeping one another apart, we are not achieving anything. We have to come to know one another, and once we come to know one another, we've gone a long way towards solving the problems of the country.
0: The dramatic 1994 election, in which for the first time all South Africans were eligible to vote, peacefully swept Nelson Mandela to the presidency and Ahmed Kathrada to Parliament, prisoners who had now been crowned leaders. It was a hard-earned victory for the African National Congress, which had led the anti-apartheid cause. To help the nation move into its new era and move on from old hurts, a visionary model of public hearings was adopted by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission.
1: If you're going to have a reconciliation with the people, we've got to have a healing process. And we saw this as a healing process. Truth Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, first of all, let us get all the truth from the perpetrators, full disclosure of their crimes. And that is a process towards reconciliation, as the title itself says. So we've had full disclosure. Why was
0: it so important to have the crimes fully disclosed at a time when, in
1: effect, you were trying to put the past behind you? You see, you just can't forget the past. Scores of, of hundreds and hundreds of our people have lost near and dear ones. It remains with them. Once they are able to find out, because they are asking, what's happened to our near and dear ones? Here I give you an example of an arm that is found. Others, near and dear ones, have just disappeared from the face of the earth. People want to know, where are they? What happened to them? Can we still exhume them so that we can give them a dignified burial? It's, it's a natural human desire. And that is why it was important. And fortunately, one after another, perpetrators of these crimes have come forward. Not all of them, naturally. We would have liked to see all of them come forward. They haven't. But many have come forward and one admires them for having come forward and and admitted to crime and identified graves where they buried people, uh, identified places where they blew up people. People said, we were responsible for this. We did this, that, and other. We tied dynamite. They also pointed fingers at the rulers of the day. But unfortunately, the rulers, President de Klerk, came before the Truth Commission and said, I did not know. Which is just not likely. Unlike what Mandela did uh, in our trial. He addressed the court and took responsibility for everything that was done, for everything that we were charged with, whereas the other side betrayed the foot soldiers. And that is why there is so much bitterness among the and file of of the police. What was the reason for devising a system
0: whereby people would be forgiven if they confessed their wrongdoing? as opposed to a system whereby they'd be punished after their
1: wrongdoing were established? I should say we had a choice of having the Nuremberg trials or taking this course. Nuremberg trials would have put a few people into prison. To what end? When it does not contribute towards the healing process. People who, who, who are after revenge may feel satisfied emotionally that we have put these people into jail. It doesn't help. In many cases, uh, after the uh, perpetrators have given evidence, families have got together, embraced one another, have started visiting one another, uh, asking for forgiveness. Now one can go on and on giving examples of that, where reconciliation has taken place uh, at an individual level. There was a case in Natal where uh, a captain had been sentenced to death and commuted to life imprisonment. And in those days, uh, before 94, he has come out of prison. And among the first thing he did, he was, I think, uh, found guilty and sentenced for killing about a dozen people. Among the first thing he did is he went to the families and asked for forgiveness. In many cases, people have accepted his forgiveness. Others have have decided to devote uh, their lives now towards uh, improving the quality of life of people that they have harmed. For so many years,
0: under the harsh rule of the apartheid system, people who suffered, who had been subjected to cruel abuses, were not given an opportunity to give voice to their experience. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission offered a context in which it was Appropriate. It was necessary for people to bear witness and testify to the difficult experiences they had had.
1: Was that itself a healing opportunity? I'd like to believe it. It it has. You had the choice of giving this uh, opportunity to perpetrators and victims to come forward, or not giving them that opportunity at all, where victims are going to harbor this till it wells up and it can explode into anything one day. We had to choose this route which, to our mind, uh, would contribute towards the healing process. Naturally, it's too early to assess what the Truth Commission has achieved. It's for history to be able to assess, uh, really, how much it has achieved. You know, the, the commission uh, allowed for people who wanted to give evidence victims, they allowed for those victims to have someone sit in with them to assist them uh, while they gave evidence. I was asked by a friend of mine who was very severely tortured, but uh, who also spent 18 years with us in prison, to sit with him. Now, he's a close friend of mine whom I've known long before we went to prison. In prison, during the 18 years that he spent there. And after he came out, after we came out, and we are still great friends, he never disclosed the extent of his torture. He did not even want to give evidence before the commission. We had to persuade him because it was quite an emotional thing for him. And uh, it was the first time that I heard from him the extent of his torture. He came into prison a very full of anger, full of feelings of revenge, but we had, well, had long discussions in prison. And of course he, he overcame that difficulty, but to get him to give evidence before the Truth Commission was a very difficult thing, and then I saw the reason why. For the first time he disclosed the electric shocks he got and all that. But he never talked. He never gave any information to the other side. And what was most touching is, uh, at the end of his evidence, he asked the Truth Commission to be allowed to make a statement, which he did, and he asked the Truth Commission and colleagues to forgive him to forgive him because under torture when he could no longer take it he screamed that was the most touching thing so there were other cases like that but this i'm citing because i sat in with him and he's a close friend of me in fact he accompanied me on this trip he asked
0: forgiveness simply... Just because he screamed. Because he cried
1: out. Yeah. There was another one, also a colleague. I, I did not attend his particular uh, hearing. But again, he never told us what had happened to him until the Truth Commission. He was held out of the window, 10th floor window, by his feet, and told, talk, otherwise we could not let you go. Uh, he didn't talk. He's the one who is still, after 30 years, suffering from fits uh, as a result of the torture, electric torture and this experience. It was the electric shocks plus this experience of being held out of the window and threatened that if you don't talk, we are going to let you go.
0: It is astounding that South Africa's recent transition from apartheid to equality has managed largely to avoid the cycle of violent reprisal so common in other troubled regions. For Ahmed Kathrada, the new era cannot flourish in an atmosphere of vengeance.
1: If you trace the history of the Congress movement, of the African National Congress, ever since it was founded, it preached non-racialism. It was a realistic organization. Uh, Its leaders, although conservative, moderate leaders in the beginning, knew that after all the dust is settled, white and black will have to live together in South Africa. Our leadership never succumbed to the slogan that smaller liberation organizations, one of them in particular, had, throw the white man into the sea. It was an unrealistic, it was an emotive thing which did attract people. But ours were uh, realistic leaders. Uh, so philosophically, the philosophy of our organization believed in reconciliation believed that we have to forgive in order to concentrate on the on our priorities which is to to build the new country the new nation that was absolutely and then from the practical point of view purely from the practical point of view, everything in South Africa was controlled by whites, the top echelons of the civil service and as you know no country can last for a day without the civil service. So you had the civil service, the army, the police, the industry, agriculture, the mines, everything was in white hands. We could not build a new nation without the whites. So practically, too, it was uh, absolutely important to, to have reconciliation. We have inherited a country which was with massive hunger, unemployment, social problems, etc. Over a million and a half children without schools, seven million people living in squatter camps without water, without lights. So we have to deliver. People will be patient, have been patient, but there's an end to patience as well. We have started delivering. The 12 million houses that are without water, we have supplied water to 3 million houses. We are supplying electricity at the rate of 1,500 a day. But much, much work has to be done. And we realize that in order to keep our people calm, we just have to deliver. That is why President Mbeki has made it a priority for his term of presidentship. Although the delivery process had started, but we have to speed it up. And that is a massive task. I have said before that in many ways the struggle to end apartheid was less difficult than the struggle we are facing now to build the new country, the new nation, and provide for the needs of the people. So you had to find some way to make peace because you couldn't go forward without that. That's right. As I say, philosophically, practically, we just had to. And we had to forgive. Horrendous crimes were committed uh, against our people. Uh, just the crime of apartheid, which was declared uh, a crime against humanity by United Nations. And and against individuals, there were crimes committed. It's very difficult to forgive. I mean, we'll never forget. But it's, it's very difficult to forgive, but we just had to.
0: Ahmed Kathrada, who served 26 years in prison with Nelson Mandela, then after release, was elected to South Africa's parliament. His prison memoir is entitled Letters from Robben Island. to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with the Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Greg Fitzgerald and Brendan Tapley. Program development and support provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment with Ahmed Kathrada is Humankind Program Number 30. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio.